Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Calling Tau City, turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring tales to terrify and far-fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. Pointing them to the moon. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to Show 499. <laughs> I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Show 499. One week to go. And these next three weeks, this week, the the big one and the one after, we are pulling out some big guns. Big guns for the kind of celebration. Today's story, I'm going to get just straight into it there, is... The writer is Mr. Joe Haldeman. Yes, man, God. Non So Blind, which was originally published in Asimov Science Fiction. I'll give you the official bio of Mr. Ha- Mr. Haldeman to everyone, please. Born in Oklahoma City, Joe Haldeman has gained both the Nebula Award and the Hugo Award for his famous novel, The Forever War, one of the landmark books of the 70s. He has since won four more Hugo Awards and another four Nebula Awards, the James Triptree Award for his novel Camouflage, the Science Fiction Writers of America Grandmaster Award, and has been inducted into the Science Fiction Hall of Fame. His other books include Accidental Time Machine, Mars Bound and Star Bound. Haldeman lives part of the year in Boston where he teaches writing at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and the rest of the year in Florida where he and his wife Gay make their home. This story is narrated by Cheyenne Wright. Just a fabulous narration there as well. Cheyenne is the freelance illustrator and concept artist. He is the colour artist for three-time Hugo award-winning steampunk graphic novel series Girl Genius and co-creator of many fine works including 50 Fathoms and any award-winning Deadlands Noir for the Savage Worlds role-playing game. He's also produced graphics for Star Trek Online, the Champions MMO and T-shirt designs for TV's Alton Brown. Cheyenne lives in Seattle with his wife and their daughter and the ever-growing stack of unpainted miniatures. In his spare time, he's teaching himself animation and narrates stories for a variety of audio anthologies where he's known as Podcasting's Mr. Buttery Man Voice. That's trademarked. So... The Starship Sova is very proud to present None So Blind by Joe Haldeman It all started when Cletus Jefferson asked himself, Why aren't all blind people geniuses? Cletus was only thirteen at the time, but it was a good question, 
and he would work on it for fourteen more years, and then change the world forever. Young Jefferson was a polymath, an autodidact, a nerd literally without peer. He had a chemistry set, a microscope, a telescope, and several computers, some of them bought with paper route money. Most of his income was from education, teaching his classmates not to draw to inside straits. Not even nerds. Not even nerds who are poker players non pare. Not even nerdish poker players who can do differential equations in their heads are immune to Cupid's darts. In the sudden storm of testosterone that will accompany those missiles at the age of thirteen, Cletus knew that he was ugly and his mother dressed him funny. He was also short and pudgy and could not throw a ball in any direction. None of this bothered him until his ductless glands started cooking up chemicals that weren't in his chemistry set. So Cletus started combing his hair and wearing clothes that mismatched according to fashion. But he was still short and pudgy and irregular of feature. He was also the youngest person in his school, even though he was a senior and the only black person there, which was a factor in Virginia in 1994. Now, if love were sensible, if the sexual impulse was ever tempered by logic, you would expect that Cletus, being Cletus, would assess his situation and go off in search of someone homely. But of course he didn't. He just jingled and clanked down through the pachinko machine of adolescence, being rejected at first glance by every Mary and Judy and Jenny and Veronica in known space. Going from the ravishing to the beautiful to the pretty to the cute to the plain to the great personality until the irresistible force of statistics brought him finally into contact with Amy Linderbaum, who could not reject him at first glance, because she was blind. The other kids thought was more than amusing. Besides being blind, Amy was about twice as tall as Cletus, and, to be kind, equally irregular of feature. She was accompanied by a guide dog, who looked remarkably like Cletus, short and black and pudgy. Everybody was polite to her, because she was blind, and rich. But she was a new transfer student, and didn't have any actual friends. So along came Cletus, to whom Cupid had dealt only slings and arrows, and what might otherwise have been merely an opposite-the-track sort of romance, became an emotional and intellectual union that, in the next century, would power a social tsunami that would irreversibly transform the human condition. But first, there was the violin. Her classmates had sensed that Amy was some kind of nerd herself, as classmates will. But they hadn't figured out what kind yet. She was pretty fast with a computer, but you could chalk that up to being blind and actually needing the damn thing. She wasn't fanatical about it nor about science or math, or history, or Star Trek, or student government. So what the hell kind of nerd was she? It turns out that she 
was a music nerd, but at the time was too painfully shy to demonstrate it. All Cletus cared about initially was that she lacked those pesky Y chromosomes and didn't recoil from him. In the Venn diagram of the human race, she was the only member of that particular set. And when he found out that she was actually smart as well, having read more books than most of her classmates put together, romance began to smolder in a deep and permanent place. That was even before the violin. Amy liked it that Cletus didn't play with her dog, and was straightforward in his curiosity about what it was like to be blind. She could assess people pretty well from their voices. After one sentence, she knew that he was young, black, shy, nerdly, and not from Virginia. She could tell from his inflection that either he was unattractive or that he thought he was. She was six years older than him and white and twice his size, but otherwise they matched up pretty well. And they started keeping company in a big way. Among the few things that Cletus did not know anything about was music. That the other kids wasted their time memorizing the words to inane top forty songs was proof of intellectual dysfunction, if not actual lunacy. Furthermore, his parents had always been fanatical devotees of opera, a universe bounded on one end by puerile mumblings about unrequited love, and on the other by foreigners screaming in agony, was not a universe that Cletus desired to explore. Until Amy picked up her violin. They talked constantly. They sat together at lunch and met between classes. When the weather was good, they sat outside before and after school and talked. Amy asked her chauffeur to please be ten or fifteen minutes late picking her up. So after about three weeks' worth of the fullness of time, Amy asked Cletus to come over to her house for dinner. He was a little hesitant, knowing that her parents were rich, but he was also curious about that lifestyle and, face it, was smitten enough that he would have walked off a cliff if she asked him nicely. He even used some computer money to buy a nice suit, a symptom that caused his mother to grope for the Valium. The dinner was at first awkward. Cletus was bewildered by the arsenal of silverware and all the different kinds of food that didn't look or taste like food. But he had known it was going to be a test, and he always did well on tests even when he had to figure out the rules as he went along. Amy had told him that her father was a self-made millionaire. His fortune had come from a set of patents in solid-state electronics. Cletus had, therefore, spent a Saturday at the university library, first searching patents and then reading selected texts, and he was ready, at least, for the father. It worked very well. Over soup, the four of them talked about computers— over the calamari cocktail, Cletus and Mr. Linderbaum had it narrowed down to specific operating systems and partitioning schemata. With Beef Wellington, Cletus and Call Me Lindy were talking quantum electrodynamics. With the salad, they were on an electron cloud somewhere. 
and by the time the nuts were served, the two nuts at the end of the table were talking in Boolean algebra, while Amy and her mother exchanged knowing sighs and hummed snatches of Gilbert and Sullivan. By the time they retired to the music room for coffee, Lindy liked Cletus very much, and the feeling was mutual. But Cletus didn't know how much he liked Amy, really liked her, until she picked up the violin. It wasn't a Strahd. She was promised one if and when she graduated from Juilliard, but it had cost more than the Lamborghini in the garage, and she was not only worth it, but equal to it. She picked it up and tuned it quietly while her mother sat down at the electronic keyboard next to the grand piano, set it to harp, and began the simple arpeggio that a musically sophisticated person would recognize as the introduction to the violin showpiece Meditation from Mazinet's Theus. Cletus had turned a deaf ear to opera for all his short life, so he didn't know the backstory of transformation and transcending love behind this intermezzo. But he did know that his girlfriend had lost her sight at the age of five, and the next year, the year he was born, was given her first violin. For thirteen years she had been using it to say what she would not say with her voice, perhaps to see what she could not see with her eyes, and on the deceptively simple romantic matrix that Mazinet built to present the beautiful courtesan Theus gloriously reborn as the Bride of Christ, Amy forgave her godless universe for taking her sight, and praised it for what she was given in return. And she said this in a language that even Cletus could understand. He didn't cry very much, never had, but by the last high, wavering note, he was weeping into his hands, and he knew that if she wanted him, she could have him forever. And oddly enough, considering his age and what eventually happened, he was right. He would learn to play the violin before he had his first doctorate, and during a lifetime of remarkable amity, they would play together for ten thousand hours. But all of that would come after the big idea. The big idea. Why aren't all blind people geniuses? Was planted that very night. But it didn't start to sprout for another week. Like most thirteen-year-olds, Cletus was fascinated by the human body. His own and others. But his study was more systematic than others. And, atypically... The organ that interested him the most was the brain. The brain isn't very much like a computer, although it doesn't do a bad job considering that it's built by unskilled labor and programmed more by pure chance than anything else. The one thing computers do a lot better than brains, though, is what Cletus and Lindy had been talking about over their little squids in tomato sauce. Partitioning. Think of the computer as a big meadow of green pastureland. Instead of a little dark box full of number-clogged things that are expensive to replace. And that the pastureland is presided over by a wise, old magic shepherd, who is not called a macro program. The shepherd stands on a hill and looks out over the pastureland, which is full of sheep and goats and cows, 
They aren't all in one homogenous mass, of course, since the cows would step on the lambs and the kids, and the goats would make everybody nervous, leaping and butting. So there are petitions of barbed wire that keep all the species separate and happy. This is a frenetic sort of meadow, though, with cows and goats and sheep coming in and going out all the time, moving at about three times 108 meters per second. And if the partitions were all of the same size, it would be a disaster, because sometimes there are no sheep at all, but lots of cows, who would be jammed in there hip to hip and miserable. The shepherd, being wise, knows ahead of time how much space to allot to the various creatures, and, being magic, can move barbed wire without hurting himself, or the animals. So each partition winds up marking a comfortable-sized space for each use. Your computer does that too, but instead of barbed wire, you see little rectangles or windows or file folders, depending on your computer's religion. The brain has its own partitions, in a sense. Cletus knew that certain physical areas of the brain were associated with certain mental abilities. But it wasn't a simple matter of music appreciation goes over here, long division in that corner. The brain is mushier than that. For instance, there are pretty well-defined partitions associated with linguistic functions. Areas named after French and German people if one of those areas is destroyed by stroke or bullet or flung frying pan, the stricken person may lose the ability, reading or speaking or writing coherently, associated with the lost area. That's interesting, but what is more interesting is that the lost ability sometimes comes back over time. Okay, you say. So the brain grew back, but it doesn't. You're born with all the brain cells you'll ever have. Ask any child. What evidently happens is that some other part of the brain has been sitting around as a kind of backup. And after a while, the wiring gets rewired and hooked into that backup. The afflicted person can now say his name, and then his wife's name, and then frying pan. And before you know it, He's complaining about hospital food and calling a divorce lawyer. So, on that evidence, it would appear that the brain has a shepherd, like the computer Meadow has, moving partitions around. But alas, no. Most of the time, when some part of the brain ceases to function, that's the end of it. There may be acres and acres of fertile ground laying fallow right next door, but nobody in charge to make use of it. At least not consistently. The fact that it sometimes did work is what made Cletus ask, Why aren't all blind people geniuses? Of course, there have always been great thinkers and writers and composers who were blind. And in the twentieth century, some painters to whom eyesight was irrelevant. And many of them, like Amy with her violin felt that their talent was a compensating gift. Cletus wondered whether there might be a literal truth to that, in the microanatomy of the brain. It didn't happen every time, or else all blind people would be geniuses. Perhaps it happened occasionally, through a mechanism like the one that helped people recover from strokes. 
Perhaps it could be made to happen. Cletus had been offered scholarships at both Harvard and MIT, but he opted for Columbia in order to be near Amy while she was studying at Juilliard. Columbia reluctantly allowed him a triple major in physiology, electrical engineering, and cognitive science, and he surprised everybody who knew him by doing only moderately well. The reason, it turned out, was that he was treating undergraduate work as a diversion at best. Unnecessary evil at worst. He was racing ahead of his studies in the areas that were important to him. If he had paid more attention in trivial classes, like history, like philosophy, things might have turned out differently. If he had paid attention to the literature, he might have read the story of Pandora. Our own story now descends into the dark recesses of the brain. For the next ten years, the main part of the story, which we will try to ignore after this paragraph, will involve Cletus doing disturbing intellectual tasks, like cutting up dead brains and learning how to pronounce cholecystokylin and sawing holes in people's skulls and poking around inside with live electrodes. In the other part of the story, Amy also learned how to pronounce cholecystokylin for the same reason that Cletus learned how to play the violin. Their love grew and mellowed, and at the age of nineteen, between his first doctorate and his M.D., Cletus paused long enough for them to be married and have a whirlwind honeymoon in Paris, where Cletus divided his time between the musky charms of his beloved and the sterile cubicles of the Institut Marais, learning how squids learn things which was, by serotonin, pushing adenylate cyclase to catalyze the synthesis of cyclic anodensin monophosphate in just the right place. But that's actually the main part of the story, which we have been trying to ignore, because it gets pretty gruesome. They returned to New York, where Cletus spent eight years becoming a pretty good neurosurgeon. In his spare time, he tucked away a doctorate in electrical engineering. Things began to converge. At the age of thirteen, Cletus had noticed that the brain used more cells collecting, handling, and storing visual images than it used for all the other senses combined. Why aren't all blind people geniuses? Was just a specific case of the broader assertion. The brain doesn't know how to make use of what it's got. His investigations over the next fourteen years were more subtle and complex than that initial question and statement, but he did wind up coming right back around to them, because the key to the whole thing was the visual cortex. When a baritone saxophone player has to transpose sheet music from cello, he, few women are drawn to the instrument, merely pretends that the music is written in treble clef rather than bass, eyeballs it up an octave, and then plays without the octave key pressed down. It's so simple a child could do it, if a child wanted to play such a huge, ungainly instrument. As his eye dances along the little fence posts of notes, his fingers automatically perform a one-to-one -one transformation, that is, the theoretical equivalent of adding and subtracting octaves, fifths, and thirds. But all of the actual mental work is done when he looks up in the top right corner of the first page and says, Ah, oh, hell. Cello again?
cello parts aren't that interesting to saxophonists. But the eye is the key, and the visual cortex is the lock. When blind Amy sight-reads for the violin, she has to stop playing and feel the braille notes with her left hand. Years of keeping the instrument in place while she does this has made her neck muscles so strong that she can crack a walnut between her chin and shoulder. The visual cortex is not involved. Of course, she hears the mute notes of a phrase within her fingertips, temporarily memorizing them, and then plays them over and over until she can add that phrase to the rest of the piece. Like most blind musicians, Amy had a very good ear. It actually took her less time to memorize music by listening to it, repeatedly, rather than reading, even with fairly complex pieces. She used Braille, nevertheless, for serious work, so she could isolate the composer's intent from the performer's or the conductor's phrasing decisions. She didn't really miss being able to sight-read in a conventional way. She wasn't even sure what it would be like. Since she had never seen sheet music before she lost her sight, and in fact had only a vague idea of what a printed page of writing looked like. So when her father came to her in her thirty-third year and offered to buy her the chance of a limited gift of sight, she didn't immediately jump at it. It was expensive, and risky, and grossly deforming. Implanting miniaturized video cameras in her eye sockets and wiring them up to stimulate her dormant optic nerves. What if it made her only half-blind but also blunted her musical ability? She knew how other people read music, at least in theory, but after a quarter century of doing it without the skills, she wasn't sure that it would be too much for her. It might make her tighten up. Besides, most of her concerts were done as charities, to benefit organizations for the blind or for special education. Her father argued that she would be even more effective in those venues as a recovered blind person. Still, she resisted. Cletus said he was cautiously for it. He said that he had reviewed the literature and had talked to the Swiss team who had successfully done the implants on dogs and primates. He said he didn't think she would be harmed by it, even if the experiment failed. What he didn't say to Amy, or Lindy, or anybody, was the grisly Frankensteinian truth that he was himself behind the experiment. That it had nothing to do with restoring sight. That the little video cameras would never even be hooked up. They were just an excuse for surgically removing her eyeballs. Now a normal person would have extreme feelings about popping out somebody's eyeballs for the sake of science, and even more extreme feelings on learning that it was a husband wanting to do it for his wife. Of course, Cletus was far from being normal in any respect. To his way of thinking, those eyeballs were useless vestigial appendages that blocked surgical access to the optic nerve, which would be his conduits through the brain to the visual cortex. Physical conduits through which incredibly tiny surgical instruments would be threaded. 
but we have promised not to investigate that part of the story in detail. The end result was not grisly at all, and Amy finally agreed to go to Geneva, and Cletus and his surgical team, all as skilled as they were unethical, put her through three twenty-hour days of painstaking but painless microsurgery. And when they took the bandages off and adjusted a thousand-dollar wig, for they had had to go in behind as well as through the eye sockets, she actually looked more attractive than when they had started. That was partially because her actual hair had always been a disaster. And now she had glass baby blues instead of the rather scary opulescence of her natural eyes. No Buck Roger TV cameras peering out at the world. He told her father that that part of the experiment hadn't worked, and the six Swiss scientists who had been hired for the purpose agreed. They're lying, Amy said. They never intended to restore my sight. The sole intent of the operation was to subvert the normal functions of the visual cortex in such a way as to give me access to the unused parts of my brain. She faced the sound of her husband's breathing, her blue eyes looking beyond him. You have succeeded beyond your expectations. Amy had known this as soon as the fog of drugs from the last operation had lifted. Her mind started making connections, and those connections made connections, and so on at a geometrical rate of growth. By the time they had finished putting her wig on, she had reconstructed the entire microsurgical procedure from her limited readings and conversations with Cletus. She had suggestions as to improving it, and was eager to go under and submit herself to further refinement. As to her feelings about Cletus, in less time than it takes to read about it, she had gone from horror to hate to understanding to renewed love, and finally, to an emotional condition beyond the ability of any merely natural language to express. Fortunately, the lovers did have Boolean algebra and propositional calculus at their disposal. Cletus was one of the few people in the world she could love, or even talk to one-on-one -on -one without condescending. His IQ was so high that its number would be meaningless. Compared to her, though, he was slow and barely literate. It was not a situation he would tolerate for long. The rest is history, as they say, and anthropology. As those of us left who read with our eyes must recognize every minute of every day. Cletus was the second person to have the operation done, and he had to accomplish it while on the run from medical ethics people and their policemen. There were four the next year, though, and twenty the year after that, and then two thousand, and twenty thousand. Within a decade, people with purely intellectual occupations had no choice, or one choice. Lose your eyes, or lose your job. By then, the second sight operation was totally automated, 
totally safe. It's still illegal in most countries, including the United States, but who's kidding whom? If your department chairman is second-sighted, and you are not, do you think you'll get tenure? You can't even hold a conversation with a creature whose synapses fire six times as fast as yours, with whole encyclopedias of information instantly available. You are, like me, an intellectual throwback. You may have a good reason for it, being a painter or an architect, a naturalist or a trainer of guide dogs. Maybe you can't come up with the money for the operation, but that's a weak excuse, since it's trivially easy to get a loan against future earnings. Maybe there's a good physical reason for you to not lie down on that table and open your eyes for the last time. I know Cletus and Amy through music. I was her keyboard professor once at Juilliard. Though now, of course, I'm not smart enough to teach her anything. They come to hear me play sometimes, in this run-down bar, with its band of aging first-sight musicians. Our music must seem boring, obvious, but they do us the favor of not joining in. Amy was an innocent bystander in this sudden evolutionary explosion. And Cletus was, arguably, blinded by love. The rest of us have to choose what kind of blindness to endure. And there you go. Don't forget, copyright is Mr. Joe Haldeman on show 499. To have Joe Haldeman on and to have an amazing narration as well. Wow, bye, Cheyenne. Just thank you so much, both of you. Just unbelievable. And like I say, Joe Haldeman, uh, you know what I mean? It, we've got some history. He's been very kind to Starship Sofa. I remember, yeah, I'm going to take a stab at show number 16 when we first started. Joe give us graves, and from then he's just been so kind. I've had him on sofa con there. We've done a like a video, how to write science fiction, where Joe just kind of goes in depth and talks about how to actually basically write science fiction, how he started, and everything like that as well. So, and we played a couple of stories by Mister Haldeman. So, Joe, how cheeky young whippersnapper I am there. So, big thank you. Listen. We're getting to like show 500. This isn't happening, do you know what I mean, without your support. It just, we need it, do you know what I mean? So please, well, I want to get to another, I want to get a, a thousand shows, man. Another 10 years, ah, this puppy can still go, do you know what I mean? But we need funding. Please, if you listen to this, support where it'd be fantastic. Pop over to Patreon and do the right thing. You get postcards, you get all sorts of things over there as well. So to help you, to help you do it, please, it'd be fantastic. Until next week. Just like the seer. Good night from me. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.
Get out there. 